0: And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources, because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello, fabulous people of the Take On Board community. Look, I know, I know. I said last week, this was the final podcast for Take On Board 2022. And now here I am again in your ears. So, I don't know about you, but I listen to a lot of podcasts during the summer period. There's road trips that have loads of listening time, there's walks that have loads of listening time, or maybe it's just downtime on the couch with the earpods in. And during the year, I have a ridiculous list of podcasts to listen to. It's like that pile of books that sits on the bedside table that, you know, kind of just haunts you when you don't get to them. Then over summer, you might get to that bedside table and that pile of books or like me, and because you're listening to this, I'm thinking you are, you get to work on your listening. So quite often over summer, I run out of podcasts to listen to and I don't like that. So this year, dear Take On Board community, I don't want to leave you short of listening. So, I'm rerunning some of the most popular episodes from the last 12 months. Loads of summer listening to keep you entertained. Our summer series is three episodes, all of which cover a different aspect of governance one on technical knowledge, one on support in the boardroom, and one on emotional intelligence in the boardroom. In terms of technical knowledge, we'll hear from Bryn O'Brien on one of the big governance issues of our time ESG, or environmental, social, and governance factors in the boardroom. In terms of support in the boardroom or outside the boardroom, we'll hear from Megan May on the importance of mentoring. And finally, in terms of all things emotional intelligence, we'll hear from Cassandra Kelly on hugs in the boardroom. And if you're new to the Take On Board podcast, well, feel free to go right back to the start. I'll link to the first four episodes in the show notes. In episode one, there's Sandra Loder on depth and breadth in the boardroom. In episode two, we feature Rachel Lowry on getting clear on your intentions in joining a board. Episode three is the fabulous Michelle Shepard on how to not let imposter syndrome get in your way to the boardroom. And then episode four, Llewellyn Prain, which was actually the first podcast i recorded, on courageous questions in the boardroom. As I say, I don't want you running out of listening options. I also can't miss the opportunity to encourage you to join us in our flagship program, Take On Board Accelerator. If you're in the boardroom and you're looking for a brains trust, cheer squad and governance sounding board, then the Take On Board Accelerator program is for you. You'll join nine other women or non-binary board members in a monthly session to grow your governance wisdom. It's all run via Zoom, so you can join from wherever you are in the world. Super early bird prices close on the 31st of December. If you're listening on the day this podcast is released, that's only four days away. So get on it. Some of the groups have already filled and others have very limited spaces. There's a link to book or for more information in the show notes. All righty. On with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halja Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. I think we are ready to get started. Welcome, everybody, to this Take On Board event, where today we're going to be talking all things ESG, environmental, social and governance. Our guest today is the fabulous Bryn O'Brien, who I will introduce properly in a moment. I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we variously meet. For me, that is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, as I'm in the inner north of Melbourne, but I know we have people from all sorts of different lands here, both Melbourne, Victoria, New South Wales and beyond. Paying my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and any First Nations people we may have here today. Introduction time. This is Bryn, she's next to me on my part of the screen. You'll see her in a moment and hear her incredible wisdom in a moment. So Bryn is the Executive Director of the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, ACCR. They invest in and engage with listed companies regarding their performance on ESG issues. So when Patricia, wherever Patricia is, shout out again to Patricia, when I spoke to her and she said, Can we have a podcast about ESG issues? These were the people that I came to so because I know that they can help us all pull apart ESG in the boardroom. So Bryn is with us today to unravel it all and demystify it all, all in the next 15 or 20 minutes. How incredible is she? So I'm going to hand over to Bryn. Know that we will have 15 to 20 minutes afterwards for questions. Okay, Bryn, over to you. Thank you so much, Helia,
1: and hello, everyone. I'm joining you from Wadi Wadi country on the south coast of New South Wales, and I too pay my respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that this uh, is unceded land Particularly important, or it's important all the time, but important as we talk about ESG, the rights of First Nations people are a really, really material uh, ESG consideration on this continent. So I've got there. hello and welcome introduction to ESG with extra C because we're going to go really deep on climate today. Well, not really deep because you can't really go super deep on climate in 15 minutes, but that is the ESG issue that we are going to address in most depth. And also just shout out to everyone doing homeschooling. Um, I am in awe of all of you. I am not homeschooling at the moment and uh, watching my friends and family and colleagues do it, superhuman effort. What a time to be alive. Okay, so this is just the the, the structure of the presentation. We're going to have heaps of time for Q&A But we're going to go through who is ACCR, a bit of an understanding, because that will uh, illuminate how we deal with ESG and how we deal with these kinds of issues and risks. What is ESG? And so, spoiler alert, and you will all know this, environmental, social and governance considerations. And we'll go really into climate change boards and directors and have a, a bit of a discussion about future trends. So... This is really ACCR. So as Helia said, ACCR invests in and then use the powers of ownership to try to transform major listed equities. So we do company engagement. You'll see down the bottom that is the fundamental uh, part of, of ACCR. And our universe of companies really starts with large ASX listed equities. And recently we have been expanding into covering some major global stocks in the oil and gas sector. And um, just a shout-out to Marina Liu and Shuling Liao, who are part of our global team, who really set this conversation up there on the call today. Um, If anyone's got super technical questions about climate risk and materiality, then uh, I will be throwing to you, uh, Marina and Shuling. So company engagement, research and analysis, large listed equities is the kind of fundamentals of, of ACCR. The companies that we invest in are the likes of BHP, Rio Tinto, the oil and gas companies, the major retailers, the banks. You know the iconic Australian companies. The ASX is an interesting index, as you will all be aware. It's it's dominated by there's a couple of duopolies. We have quite concentrated sectors in, on the on the ASX. So ACCR holds those major iconic companies. We then have a really, I guess, a long-term relationship with those companies. So I've been in this role for uh, four and a half years now, and that means four and a half years of quarterly conversations with BHP executives. It means four and a half years of uh, shareholder resolutions, which is one of the formal powers that we use as shareholders to escalate ESG issues and get them quite literally on the agenda of, of AGMs. It means four and a half years of building, maintaining relationships, which is uh, often a real challenge when you're in, I guess, quite sometimes quite an adversarial, it's quite an adversarial conversation around material ESG issues where where companies aren't managing them very well. But at the top of that diagram, you'll see the areas that a, ACCR covers. So the E for us, our E is very C. Our environment practice is almost totally climate Um, I'll come back to that, but the reason that it's almost totally climate is that climate change is everything change. Climate change, we are are starting to understand, or I guess scientists have been telling us for a long time, but the broader public and certainly the corporate executive and board community is starting to understand climate change will affect every level of our society, every uh, level of our economy and the way that we live and do business. Um, So we have a a very, uh, very, uh, quite large climate team and we really look at how companies are managing, responding to and planning around climate risk and I'll go into what that means in a moment. We've got our social impacts team which covers human rights, gender and racial discrimination, the rights of First Nations people and, of course, the the rights of workers to a safe and fair workplace and good conditions and we have Uh, really well-developed areas of work, particularly in the horticulture sector and the uh, commercial cleaning and property sector in that space. And then we have our governance team. So our our governance is really, as people in the board space, there are governance aspects of climate risk, there are governance aspects of, of social impacts risk, but then there are those pure governance aspects. You know, how is a board structured to manage these kinds of risks? Our key stakeholders are in the middle of that. So institutional investors, ACCR spends a bunch of time talking to institutional investors about their management of ESG risks in their portfolio as well as the steward their stewardship activities uh, in relation to companies that they hold. Retail shareholders, so ACCR is, I guess, a retail shareholder that behaves a bit like an institutional shareholder, and then interest groups, so uh, uh, trade unions, uh, climate and environment, NGOs, First Nations groups, and, and so on. That is the ACCR view of what ACCR does, and I'm just going to go to the next slide, which is the BHP view of what ACCR does. Okay, so this is a slide from a BHP annual report. I'm not going to go into a heap of of detail, but you'll see that ACCR and and BHP think about the management of or understanding shareholder views on ESG risks in a relatively similar way. ACCR, again, sits somewhere between we are a retail investor, but we behave like an institutional investor. We engage with the sell side analysts and research providers and are increasingly providing research ourselves and those investor relation teams on the left. We also go and talk to the board and the executives and the, I guess, the governance structures of major listed companies and then feed into the work of proxy advisors, governance advisors and rating agencies. So I'll leave that with you, but it it is useful to see how major listed companies view this universe. So ESG integration is risk management, fundamentally. Uh, That's what we're talking about. We're talking about risks that might not appear on the balance sheet now, but might well appear on the balance sheet at some point in the future. So this is not exhaustive at all. This This is just a taste of the kinds of issues that come up and that can become material and appear on a balance sheet. So how a corporation responds to climate change, of course, how a corporation treats its workforce, how a corporation manages its supply chains and seeks out information on the work conditions in its its supply chains and the human rights conditions in its supply chains. And of course, this all feeds into how corporations build trust and foster innovation. There are really serious consequences of getting ESG wrong. I alluded um, earlier in the conversation uh, to First Nations rights as a material ESG consideration. Everyone will be aware of uh, the uh, the huge uh, devastation caused by Rio Tinto in its destruction of the ancient, significant Dukin Gorge caves early last year and the kind of rolling crisis that, that exposed the organisation and its senior leadership to over the last um, 18 months. So we're at a point now where uh, two board members have resigned and five uh, senior executives have, have left the organisation at least over that, including the CEO. Then on the right of that slide, very recently, a small hedge fund managed to defeat the opposition of Exxon's board into getting uh, a set of three climate-aware directors ensconced in that board. So they they won a vote to get three climate-aware directors onto Exxon's board to do the um, the very important job of transforming that company so that it aligns with a, a safe future. So really serious consequences of, of getting ESG wrong. I could give you 100 different examples. Another one uh, that, that comes to mind just in, you know, recent Australian corporate history is AMP um, and their absolute mismanagement of the risks of, of sexual harassment in the workplace. So just jumping quickly to climate change and the physical science. Look, I, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. I'm not a climate scientist, but I, what I want you to know is that You don't need to be a climate scientist to understand to a sufficient level climate science and how serious climate change is for us at this moment. So I just put three charts into this slide deck. They're all from the recent IPCC Working Group report on the physical science of climate change. What that report finds is that it is now unequivocal, there is no debate that humans have caused significant global warming. We're at about 1.1 degrees of observed global warming now and we are on track for much greater degrees of warming and that most of that warming um, is not only caused by humans but it is caused by the extraction and combustion of fossil fuels for energy. So these are the kind of, you know, the basic charts around. You can you can just sort of see on the, the left side there between 1850, you know, pre-industrial age and 2020, commonly known as the, the hockey stick graph. You can see that the temperature um, increasing uh, very dramatically over a short period of time and that then that little segment is pulled out on the right side and you can really see the escalation or the increase in temperature just over the last 30 years. So we're at about 1.1. Now the IPCC report sets out a number of different scenarios, five different scenarios. There's only one that that roughly aligns with a safe planet and the actions that we need to take in order to be able to meet that scenario are are very, very significant. These are the the four scenarios, not going to go uh, into them in detail, but, you know, they all relate to different levels of warming and different levels of greenhouse gas emissions. And so the greenhouse gases we're talking about, of course, are, are carbon dioxide Non-carbon dioxide greenhouse gas emissions, so methane and the uh, the nox and sox as they're called, the the other greenhouse gases, and then uh, aerosols and, and and land use as well. This is the the really important thing for us is that every fraction of a degree matters, uh, every ton of carbon matters. With every increment of global warming, changes get larger in regional mean temperature, precipitation and soil moisture. So you don't need to be a climate scientist to have observed the changes in weather patterns, the changes in precipitation, the changes in the length and severity of fire seasons and so on. So what should directors know, and I'll really just kind of get to the, the surface of, of these major questions. And um, just to note, ACCR is not going anywhere. we This is the stuff we live and breathe. We are so happy to talk to you uh, at any time about these kinds of issues because they're not straightforward necessarily. Some of them are straightforward. I mean, yeah, there are some issues that we can address easily and there are other issues which we need to work through together and, and things are developing very rapidly in this space. So Directors should know that law and policy, there is a framework of law and policy that sits around climate change and the management of climate risk. So there's the Paris Agreement, which is the international treaty that sets out how states should act. There is Australia, and let me just say that as you, you know, I'm probably preaching to the converted here, but Australia's response to climate change, particularly through policy, is pathetic. Uh, we have a, a national vacuum of climate policy in Australia. We we do not have a national policy suite that will reduce emissions at scale. And in fact, our targets under the Paris Agreement, there is a lot of pressure on Australia to increase them with no effect on, on the federal government at this moment in time. But there's also the law and policy of our trading partners. And increasingly, we're seeing our trading partners signal to us that they are going to start looking at what's called carbon border adjustment mechanisms, so carbon tariffs that will affect how the export markets that our industries can sell into. There are the views of regulators, of, of APRA, of the ASX, of, of ASIC, and of you know, even of the Reserve Bank, which are all now very, very clear that climate risk is financial risk, that climate change is real, that directors need to be taking steps to, to manage climate risk. There are director's duties issues, and that's where I'm, I'm going to go next. And then we'll, we'll have a quick discussion about what to ask. So, director's duties, as you'll all be aware, the kind of ke- the key ones in the Act are uh, section 180, subsection one, and section 181. So, care and diligence and good faith in the best interests of the corporation. Then there is the line of legal opinions by Noel Hutley, SC who is very senior counsel in Australia and has been working to make sense of what climate change means for directors' duties in Australia since 2016. And so he's got this line of opinions, 2016, 2019, and most recently 2021. And and this is the real, the very crude top line summary of of what those opinions uh, set out. So climate risk is business risk and is foreseeable. It has Directors' duties and liability implications. That's the basic 2016 opinion. The 2019 opinion that these risks are exponentially increasing, and that they look like this. They look like regulatory action. If we have a change in government, we might get get law that actually requires us, law and policy that requires us to reduce emissions in emissions-intensive industries. There is a the re- very real threat of litigation, which is becoming more material every day, and the risks of climate change itself. So there are significantly increased expectations of companies by their investors and stakeholders. 2021 is a really interesting opinion. Company climate commitments must be made on a reasonable basis of evidence and they must not be misleading or de- deceptive. So if we think about the statements made by oil and gas companies that they aim to get to a you know a zero carbon future, is that possible? Those statements must be made on a reasonable basis of, of evidence. This is really the board climate change preparedness journey. I'm not going to go into it in, in great depth, but boards can go from aware to engaged to compliant to proactive to best in class. I am going to skip over in in a lot of detail this slide, but we really have you know the, the risks of climate change are the physical risks, so to assets for example, extreme weather, flooding, drought, heat stress, and so on. The transition risks those. Policy, liability, the market risk. Is there going to be a market for oil and gas in 30 years? Well, hopefully not. Like business transition risk. But what all this feeds into over on the right side is systems risk. At three or four degrees of warming, the systems that underpin our market, that underpin our economy, that underpin our society will be under unimaginable stress. And that is really the problem of climate change, that it is it is everything change. So boards need to do three things at a, at a minimum to address climate risk, a process for discussing climate risk, capability and credibility around that, and then ways of monitoring and evaluating and achieving success. So let us go to Q&A.
0: Fabulous. Thank you, Bryn, so much to get us thinking there. The first question in our list, Karen Hawkins, uh, about understanding, you know, about executive performance. Can I just call on you to ask, yeah, introduce yourself and ask your question.
2: Thanks. I'm Karen Hawkins. I currently sit on the board of GNC Mutual Bank and I'm open to offers from other boards in the financial sector. Getting in before the the end of the, the Q and A. Thanks so much, Bryn, for, for that. We in our group we felt it was a bit of a gallop through, and I'm sure that there's a whole lot of depth that uh, you know uh, we could get into. But one of the things I was interested in is, and you, you mentioned that journey uh, from you know awareness and engagement through to to proaction. And one of the things we've been struggling with is thinking about. How to translate or shift from being aware and engaged to actually having it as an integral part of our business strategy and plan, including building uh, those requirements into executive remuneration and executive performance, which seems to be a really clear and tangible way to focus attention and resources in organizations. So, wondering whether you had any thoughts or, or any ideas or examples of how that's happened in organizations.
1: Yeah, great question. Thank you. I am a a big supporter of uh, linking executive and board remuneration with climate goals or otherwise with ESG goals. And some of those, to an extent, that's already commonplace. So workplace health and safety is, of course, a a well-recognised component of of REM packages. In the climate space uh, in particular, I think it's quite well suited to linking to remuneration because the setting and achievement of targets and measuring the achievement against those targets, those things can be quite neatly lined up. However, across the companies that I deal with, remuneration is still in some cases going in the opposite way. So for example, uh, the CEO of Santos, a major listed oil and gas company, Kevin Gallagher, was incentivized when he signed up for another few years earlier this year to to stay with the company with with a massive growth projects incentive so his rem is structured so that he continues to expand the company in a time when We we must not be doing that. All of the science, all of the the credible economics says that we can't keep doing that. So I think remuneration and incentives are a really, really powerful tool if used in in the right way. And and certainly I think there's a a kind of a dark art to structuring uh, remuneration packages and there are plenty of advisors that can advise you on how to do it. I'm certainly not that expert, but I absolutely think it is um, a very, very important, you know, incentives. Incentives do drive outcomes.
0: Fabulous. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Bryn. Uh, Dominique, you're up next about uh, conversations beyond mitigation. So can you introduce yourself and
3: uh, ask the question? Hi, I'm uh, Dominique Hess. I'm the chair of the board of Greenfleet. We offset people's carbon by restoring ecosystems. I tend to work a lot in the positive benefit because that tends to be a better narrative than the tighten your belts one, uh, particularly within the built environment, education environment, where students and property owners are actually looking at uh, what benefits am I can I contribute to through my investment. So just a question around how are you seeing that at all?
1: Look, I mean, absolutely. Not so much in the universes of, of companies that that we deal. If still, the benefits uh, piece is being used in a still in a lot of greenwashing efforts. Uh, the kinds of companies that that I engage with, but certainly, look, there's a there's a kind of cleaving of corporate Australia and and the corporate community at the moment where there is an acceleration towards both the, the benefit side and also the greenwashing side. <laughs> Look, it's a, a really active conversation, but Dominic, I, I must say you you would absolutely be better prepared to answer this this question than me, because uh, I deal with the the bad guys uh, most of the time. So, do you look? Do you have anything that you want to add on that?
3: <laughs> nice handball back. <laughs> I find that uh, for the projects that I work on, just having that potential narrative around, all right, we're gonna, we need to develop for housing, but how can we bring back species at the same time? How can we improve soil? How can we create a momentum around projects that actually leads to benefit, which then leads to more projects as people see these things realised? Within the education environment, I know with, with the huge hits from COVID, there is now a movement from students saying, if we come back, we want a better educational environment. We want a space. And I think our cities potentially, our CEBDs, are also asking the same questions. How do we come back in a way that is healthy and beneficial for us? Uh, so, yeah, I'm seeing momentum just because the conversation's simpler. Um, because zero is hard, actually providing benefit has that, that those good hormones that come out that helps the narrative?
0: Fabulous, <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Dominique, as well for uh, being our special guest here and con- contribution as well. Linda, I'm going to c- come to you next for your question about the Fed's legislation. Can you introduce yourself and ask your question, please?
4: Hi, uh, so I'm Linda White, I'm on a few boards, including uh, statewide super, uh, and uh, I'm on as you. See, before Greater Western Water and a couple of other things as well. My question, I guess, is certainly driven by being on statewide super, I suppose, or by having been on a super board before, and that um, is the current proxy advisor um, legislation that the feds are proposing. So there's quite a few proxy advisors who do this sort of work, I suppose, who advise particularly super funds on how to, you know, what to look for, whether to vote against remuneration reports or, you know, as a couple of big super funds did um, put pressure significantly on uh, Rio Tinto um, about things. And, uh, you know, the feds are trying to stop those proxy advisors and I wondered if you're, by tightening it up so you can't give advice, which seems counterintuitive in a free market, but, you know, uh, it depends on who's giving the advice, I guess, and as to how free the market is. So my question is really about are you caught by that? Do you think it is uh, aimed against you? And then I guess the other question that came up in our group, which I also gave, was how do you tell if, if companies are actually doing what they say they're going to do? Like I can, I've seen beautifully written modern slavery policies, but do I think that people follow that right through in everything that they said. No, people know how to write the modern slavery policy and go tick box, done well, without an outside advisor or somebody looking at it this really deeply. What do people on boards do about that?
1: So on the proxy advisors uh, and the, there's governments putting pressure on proxy advisors, but also really I think because of the power that's been demonstrated in the ESG framework, because of the power that's been demonstrated by, I guess, the superannuation industry and its representation of everyday people through massive capital over the last five years in particular, there is a bunch of downward pressure, of of course, on the industry and on the concept of ESG kind of centrally. As to whether ACCR is, is caught by the proxy advisors moves. No, because we're not proxy advisors. I guess we come to a view about the performance of companies on ESG issues, and we make recommendations to companies about how they should manage those issues. And then institutional investors and proxy advisors go away and evaluate our proposals and our research and make a decision. So we're not in the business of providing an advisory service, but certainly uh, the combined efforts of the federal government are intended to put um, pressure on exactly the the kind of collaborative effort that we engage in with superannuation. And, you know, not, not just Australian industry super, it's also the ESG is taken very seriously by the major passive asset managers, by the major European and American active owners. And that's because pension funds represent regular people who care about um, ESG issues and don't want their retirement savings put into things that don't align with their values, but also because there's a pretty solid case that uh, it aligns with long-term shareholder returns. So there's an ideological conflict going on in the financial services sector and the superannuation sector with the federal government at the moment. Hopefully it will kind of peter out at some point, but um, it doesn't look like it's going to back off at any point soon. And, and I, I look, we're expecting. Because the reforms that have been announced so far don't directly tighten the screws on us, we're expecting more along that line. There was a second question, which was about: Oh, how do boards really understand the what they're being presented by? I guess, I guess it's companies in your portfolio, Lisa, or or advisors, and how do you kind of cut through the bullshit and cut through the, the greenwash or the the box ticking? I think that really is about building confidence and capability at board level. At, Understanding how to ask those right questions. I think with the modern slavery piece, so we've now got the modern slavery uh, compliance requirements in Australia for major Australian corporations. I think unfortunately that legislation itself is kind of set up to produce a bo- box-ticking exercise, right? So I think engagement with major stakeholder groups, of course, in you know the trade union movement and and represent- workers' representatives here and in other parts of the world is is really important. Not straightforward, but I think it's building that confidence and capability and and listening to a broad set of stakeholders will will help inform boards making decisions.
0: Gretchen, I'm going to come to you next. Yours is equal voted and yours has a name against it. So you're asking about crisis fatigue um, at the board. So Gretchen, can you introduce yourself and ask your question?
1: Thanks, Helia. I'm Gretchen. Not currently on any boards at the moment, but starting to look, hence doing the Kickstarter program. Um, So our question in our group was around how does a board manage crisis fatigue? And in particular, we're talking about if you're on a hospital board and you're talking about COVID, you're just all COVID and then climate. There's all these crises going on. How do you not get stuck in an action, into a point of inaction because you're just like, oh, my God, everything's burning? Well, uh, it's how as a board manager, and how how do we all manage it? I think just as as individuals, this is a really live live conversation in our in our organisation at, at ACCR. I think naming it, naming the fatigue, is is really really important, and I think seeking expert advice. One of the things that we're about to start is at getting at some, I guess, assistance from a, a, a psychologist that specialises in managing climate grief so naming it and then and then seeking out advice and developing strategies um, is going to be really important because if you're a hospital so of course you, you've got COVID but it's a horrific situation and an enormous amount of, of stress on the health system and on individual individual institutions but it's not long until we're in another bushfire season and so it I guess it's that building resilience as well that at least our organisation is is focused on. But I'm not an expert on this, I should say, but they're they're my kind of off the cuff thoughts.
0: I'm going to cheekily jump in on that one a little bit um, because I am on the board of a hospital and we are in the middle of a COVID crisis. But one of the things that we, and I know it'll be different for every industry, but one of the things that that I've been trying to, or not trying to, reminding us all of, and I think the executive is well across it, is the health impacts of climate change. You know, I'm on the board of the Royal Women's Hospital. There is research around the health impacts of climate change on pregnant women. Uh, Bushfires, as Brid has already raised, is a clear health issue I think connecting it to the day-to-day business of the organisation, climate change and how it impacts the day-to-day business of the organisation is one way of making it real and live rather than, oh, we'll deal with that later, it's something over there. It's like, no, it impacts us today in the day-to-day work of what we do. Okay. Even though I said questions with names uh, will be given priority, uh, I like this question, so I'm going to put my name against it, even though in the app it's anonymous. How do we bring young people into the conversation, the generation that will bear the outcomes? How do we bring them in? And I'd be interested to also hear your reflections on the young guy who's just put himself up for nomination at AGL and what that might mean in terms of bringing young people into the conversation. So I'd love to hear your reflections there as well, Bryn. So young people are there young people know what's
1: know what's up young people know what's going on. I think we have seen tremendous leadership from from young people around the world and in Australia on the issue of climate change. Some of you know some of the most powerful leadership that we have in this country is coming from young people. So I guess it's part of the, the work for us is to try to get young people they're speaking, they have a voice uh, they're there and so to amplify that which is particularly challenging in a kind of boardroom setting and so in relation to the to the nomination of, of a young person to the to the AGL board I mean AGL is a company that has destroyed so much shareholder value <laughs> over the last five years you know we're talking a more than hundred percent differential between uh, where the index has gone and where their share price has gone so their share prices dropped a big chunk and the index has gone up and there's a huge differential there. I mean, clearly something is wrong and clearly they need some fresh thinking and skills. I've seen the AGL board's response to to the nomination, which is to say um, that this young person wouldn't enhance, I guess, the composition of the board. I guess it's on them to say, well, what, what would then? How are they going to change I wouldn't rule it out as quickly. I think young people really, really understand this. And, of course, this young person doesn't have years of board experience. Of course, this young person doesn't have an AICG qualification. But those institutions have not served AGL and its shareholders. So they need to be thinking uh, in, in fresh ways.
0: It, I confess when I saw it, it almost inspired me to buy shares in AGL just so I get a vote. I didn't think that would be something that I would be thinking about, but there you have it. <laughs> All right, Dominique, we are back to you now for your question around government policy. I know you've introduced yourself, but if you can do that very briefly again, ooh,
3: Kaching. Dominique Hess, um, Chair of the Board of Greenfleet. This was from our group. Our group had an amazing discussion and we had lots of questions. They're all in there. So looking forward to you answering the ones that we don't get to. But this was um, how do we, as people on the boards of various organisations, advocate for the government to give us some clear policy directions?
1: Absolutely fantastic question. And And it goes to, I think there was another question in the chat, which was something about the What's the key reason for our inability to transition? So those things are, I think, really related questions. So I'll answer the second one first. The key reason that Australia as a a nation, and I'll talk about Australia because we're talking about government policy advocacy, (laughs) the key reason that Australia has failed to transition is because the state has been captured, the government has been essentially captured, by the interests of those who stand to benefit from delay, which is really a handful of people and institutions. So by capture, I mean the state represents, uh, the the government uh, disproportionately represents the interests of heavy industry, in particular the coal, oil and gas sectors. Now, the reason that it does that is because the coal, oil and gas sectors have spent extraordinary amounts of money and time over the last 20 or more years investing in relationships in political spending in advertising and in direct lobbying either direct lobbying from companies to government or lobbying through their trade associations so for example and this brings me to the next question Up until very recently, so Australia did have a a policy to deal with climate change. It was the carbon price that was legislated under the Gillard government, but in 2012 it did reduce emissions. It had a really pronounced effect, um, but then it was uh, overturned by the Abbott government in 2014. And the key stakeholders driving that government's overturning of the carbon price were trade associations. So it was the Minerals Council of Australia, the petroleum Industry Lobby, APIA, and the Business Council of Australia. The Business Council is a really interesting example. So the Business Council of Australia, the CEOs sit on, on the Business Council boards, sometimes other senior executives, and the Business Council is structured around committees, so they have a Climate and Energy Committee. They have a really diverse membership, though, but the Climate and Energy Committee was stacked with the fossil fuels Companies, so it was you know Glencore and and Shell and and BHP and, and Chevron on that committee, which resulted in the Business Council for a very long time having terribly outdated, almost climate denier, policy positions on on these significant issues. Recently, things have changed a bit. The banks, the financial institutions, have stepped up. They have joined that committee the atlassian and some of the tech industry companies have actually joined the business council and what they have been pushing to do is to change the business council's advocacy to government on climate Mm -hmm. so long-winded way of saying there is direct policy advocacy that that you can do but there is also a really important role in ensuring that your trade associations represent you properly on last point on trade associations, the trade association for directors is the AICD. I've seen a few comments in the chat that the AICD has had a bit of a turnaround on, on climate change recently, which is a good thing. But the AICD has been a huge part of the problem up until now. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to call it it'll be it, it probably won't even be very controversial. I think they accept it as as my impression. So they're launching this new climate governance initiative in a couple of weeks, can't believe I'm giving a plug for the AICD, but if you're a member, you should should go and and see it. But as as AICD members, it is our responsibility now to ensure that the AICD does not just kind of meet the minimum standards of decency on climate change, but that it actually, as directors should be doing, looks at future trends, looks at actually we need a total transformation and directors of, of boards are, really important set of stakeholders to activate on this transformation. It's not all done and dusted. Like some of the fellows of the AICD, some of their most senior members, their most prominent members, are still out there advocating for policy that is incompatible with a safe climate. They are still out there attacking reasonable voices on climate change. So please do add your voice and, and please do get involved in policy advocacy. It's so important.
0: Here, here on all of that. Um, and I will just add uh, for those that are members of the AICD, when they send out those surveys about director sentiment, do them and put your views around climate. Oh, Bryn, we have a million more questions here in the list, but I don't think we're going to get through them uh, in this part. But we will get through them, folks, in the next part of the recording. So, Thank you to everybody for all of your amazing questions. We will come to them in the next part of the recording. You're going to have to listen to the podcast to hear that because we're just not going to get through them here and now. Bryn, thank you for bringing such incredible advocacy and knowledge. Uh, we said at the outset that part of it was not knowing the, no- having the knowledge and the tools. And I think you have helped us today to get the knowledge and the tools to continue all of our journey on being able to bring this to the fore. And in fact, it reminds me, actually, sorry, before. So firstly, thank you, Bryn. You're awesome. Thank you so much for uh, sharing with us today. Absolute
1: Pleasure. Incredible uh, questions. I don't think I've ever been on a, a webinar with such brilliant questions so thanks so much
0: the take on board community rocks can i say okay folks thank you awesome to have you all here see you around the traps very soon hi there it's helia that's a wrap for the take on board podcast today i do this podcast because i love bringing good women together So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.